0: Well, hello and welcome to Virtual Team Dynamics, the old Fire podcast. This is episode number 88, and in this episode, I'm uh, playing back part two of an interview I recorded with Betsy Clark from Software Metrics. The interview was actually recorded a little while ago, but it's uh, it's unfortunately taken a while to edit and get it ready for release. But it was a very interesting uh, discussion and a uh, really, really interesting project to follow on from the first interview of, well, the first interview that which was the previous audio file. So I hope you enjoy it and uh, look forward to any feedback you may have. So good evening Betsy um it's great to have you back again for uh, for the follow-up part two from uh, from the last recording that we did. Um, just as a refresher for people would you like just to do a, a quick intro of who you are and uh, and what your background is?
1: Absolutely, and thank you, Francis. I really enjoyed doing the first podcast, so I appreciate the opportunity to come back and and do the second one. Um, yep, I'm Betsy Clark. I live in Haymarket, Virginia, which is in Northern Virginia, directly west of Washington, D.C. Uh, we're about a oh 35 uh, 35 miles west. And um, I got my start as an experimental psychologist. I was in cognitive psychology, studying human learning and memory and problem solving, and uh, had um, heard about a group in Arlington, Virginia. I I was out at Stanford University and then uh, UC Berkeley in California, but I heard about a group in Arlington, Virginia that was doing research on programmers and um, they were looking for a cognitive psychologist and I contacted them and fortunately got the job. So that's how I got started in this business and I stayed there for four years and then started my own company, Software Metrics Incorporated. And uh, over the years, I've uh, helped a lot of different organizations implement uh, software measurement programs and I've also done a lot of um, uh, software cost estimation and schedule estimation. And as a measurement person, I've been in, involved in reviewing uh, a lot of different programs and so it's been a wonderful opportunity to see successful ones and sometimes less successful ones but um, very much very happy to talk about a successful one tonight uh, last time I talked about the development of the uh, F-18 Super Hornet and so we have an, another one tonight.
0: That's great, yes, and it, it was really interesting to hear you talk about that uh, that project last time on the last episode. So the one that we ran out of time for last time that we get to talk about on its own this time was a, was a case study that you were involved with. So it's uh, reading the title from the book, The Electronic Support Upgrade for the Royal Australian... Well, let's try that one again. The Electronic Support Upgrade for the Royal Australian Navy's ANZAC-class frigate. Yes, uh, that's quite a mouthful. It certainly is, yes, yes. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that one then, please?
1: I would. So I'll give you just a quick background. Um, I've done a number of reviews for uh, the Australian Department of Defense. And as I mentioned before, myself and uh, several colleagues have developed a framework for Being able to go in very quickly, review a program, and if if it's slipping schedule, to identify the root causes of schedule slippage. And we have several techniques we use to forecast when different milestones will be done. So a lot of these programs uh, have problems uh, to varying degrees, but we, we heard about one that was really successful. It had delivered ahead of schedule. Uh, within cost, and was working really well. And so we thought this would be a great opportunity to look at root causes of success instead of schedule slippage. And so um, we interviewed a number of people on that program, and right after we had written that up, um, the book that uh, has been um, published by Wiley on integrating program management and systems engineering. Uh, that was that that was uh, under development. and so I had the opportunity to uh, contribute uh, this particular uh, ANzac case study as well as the super Hornet. So I'll tell you a little bit about um, the ANzac class is uh, it's a it's a frigate for people who aren't ship people, so it's a military ship. And its mission, uh, what it's designed for, is to patrol coastal areas. It's particularly good for that. Uh, It has been used by Australia in the Middle East. Um, It it is in active duty. There are a total of eight of them that Australia has. And um, the ship was first commissioned back in 1996. Uh, It's gone through several upgrades of major systems, um and the the system that i'm going to talk about now is call, is called the electronic support system for people who don't really know what that is um basically it 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 it's kind of like an application the best analogy is like an application on your iphone that identifies a song and says what the title of the song is and who sang it what an electronic support system does is it gathers information electromagnetic radiation so these are the radiations coming from radars and and and, and, uh, and other things and it, it's able to detect is this friendly or is this a foe is this not friendly and if it's not friendly what is it so it's pretty important if you're out there on a ship to understand what, what is around you and if it detects uh, that an attack is in is imminent. It, it it has ways of knowing that and can then communicate with um, a combat man- management system. So it's pretty important if you're if you're out there patrolling in, in a hostile area. Sounds like um, it, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, for the, the Anzac class ship, uh, one of the highest priorities of the Chief of Navy for the Australian for Australia was a new Um, upgraded um, electronic support system, and um, there had been uh, one of the strategies that the Navy decided was that they were going to go with a common electronic support system for several different classes of ships, and they thought this will save money both in buying the system and it'll definitely save money in in sustaining it, in maintaining it, and keeping it going because it's common parts, it's common training for our sailors, et cetera. And so um, there was a, a team of four contractors. There was a there was a competition and um, four contra- a team of four different contractors won. Um, and that was a company called Excellus, which is now owned by Harris Corporation. They're a US company and there's a company in Australia, Jenkins Engineering Defense Systems, or JEDS as they're known. They're ultra Electronics is another one. And then there was an American American company, Southwest Research Institute. So there's four different companies. They have different receivers that they're making. They all have to be able to talk and talk to each other. Um, the Southwest Research Institute was was actually making the math. To this would all hang on. Um, So it was a little bit of a complex thing right there. And then there were, in complex systems, there's a lot of, there are a lot of different systems that have to talk to each other. That's part of the complexity. And there were three other contractors whose systems or activities had to integrate with this electronic support system. One of them was uh, Saab Australia. They make the combat management system. Um, Another company was CAE Technologies. They're an Australian company that has a very advanced radar. Um, And then finally BAE Systems Australia, they were – they own a shipyard outside of Perth called Henderson, and they're the ones who do the installation on the ship itself. So you can sort of sort of get the idea of the complexity here. There's four contractors on the team, then there's another three contractors who have either systems or activities that all have to all have to integrate well. So what uh, the program manager, uh, person named Dan Kellerher of this electronic support upgrade for the ANZAC, what he decided was he was going to bring all those players together early on and have a series of workshops where they would talk to each other, they would talk about each of their systems, and they would would look at the risks, what had to be done to have everything work well together. Now, one of the things that the uh, MIT PMI and cozy book talks about is integrating project management and and systems engineering and a big advantage of that is not only respecting the different disciplines but fostering collaboration and cooperation and communication so that's really what Dan was doing very early on just the the way that the whole Procurement or acquisition process works in Australia. There was a period of time from the initial selection of those contractors to when Dan's project received full funding. But he was able to get some funding up front to bring these people together, get them working together. That kept the skill level going until the actual full contract started. Mm -hmm. And um, so they did that. And then in 2013, he he was able to receive the full funding. Now, the, during the the whole um, that whole risk reduction workshop area uh, or period, um, they were able. The contractors were able to go up on the NSAC ships. They could get physical dimensions. They were able to look at the whole electromagnetic environment, which is important for having the equipment work correctly. They just did a lot of that work. And again, they were really focused on getting this capability out to the Navy as quickly as possible. So the other piece of the complexity of this is um, when ships are going in for upgrades, that's not done in the water. Uh, The ship is taken out of service. And then it's put up on a dry dock, um, and that's at the Henderson um, shipyards outside of Perth. And there's a period of time then when the ship is available. What what happens during that is any maintenance it needs, uh, it takes place. So there's a hull survey done. Does does the hull need to be repaired? Uh, The ships are always stripped down and painted. Compartments are opened up. Uh, to to just look at the condition of things or to put in equipment. Big holes are opened up in the side of the ship in order to put equipment in. Mm. So while there were several of the Inzap ships that were in dry dock, and so what Dan and, and, and the project decided is the system's not ready yet. The electronic support system is still being built, but we do know things like how much cabling is required we know the dimensions of the ship we can actually go ahead and install the cabling we can install the mast we can they actually were able to install the foundations for the rack of equipment and there was a council a console they were using to run it uh, they were able to install that console as well while there were holes in the ship and they could put it in so Basically, they did as much as they could. They didn't have the system, but they put as much of the foundation in as they could. Um, and that's a, there's a term for that in the ship world, which it's called fitted for, but not with. So as the Anzac ships were there, um, and the, the electronic system now is being built in the United States and pieces of it in Australia but they were able to put the physical infrastructure into the ship. And this was a way to save time. They were able to do this because they'd had those risk reduction workshops where they had all worked together and taken the measurements on the ship. So then what happened? Um, I mean, everything's going along fine. And um, it, the plan was as soon as the first electronic um, support system is ready, into the ship it'll go. And it can even be put in, in the water um, because we have all the infrastructure fitted, but what happened is the first ship that was supposed to get that electronic um, support system was running behind schedule for reasons that were totally outside of this particular project. It was running six months behind, so it was going to be back in the water six months late. Um, that ship was called the first of. It was the first of class. And there, were, there was a lot of contractual paperwork around that ship because there's all kinds of sea trials and testing that are planned for that ship. There's payments to the contractor for that ship. But what happened is it was running behind, but there was another ship that had been fitted out with the infrastructure that was going back into the water. So they actually did the other ship. The name of that ship is Waramunga. And um, it, it, because it had all that infrastructure, as soon as the system was ready, it went on to Warramunga. And uh, Warramunga went through the sea trials and everything. And it sounds like a simple thing, but again, it required a lot of flexibility on the part of both the government customer, the project office, and the contractor, mm-hmm. um, just because everything had been set for that other ship. I, yeah, um, but I, I could yeah. imagine
0: it could get quite... Um quite contractual in certain circumstances that yes, that one yes. party would say well we're just going to sit and twiddle our thumbs until the very ship that this is supposed to go into is is here and ready for us so to move around that was was quite a yeah quite an achievement
1: absolutely if they wanted if all of them wanted to be sort of administrative bureaucratic they could have said my paperwork says this ship and that's what we're going to do and in fact the contract people could have been that way But instead, the TIFA Navy wanted this and this project. One thing that we have found with successful projects is they are so focused on the outcome, which they're so focused on what it is they're delivering to the ultimate customer. In this case, it was the Navy fleet. And, um, and and it's always leadership that has that vision and really insists on it. Um, and so they, they very much had that outcome focused attitude. One of the quotes, one of the people we talked to, Um, said, we knew that the Chief of Navy wanted this capability as quickly as possible. And when we ran into problems, such as the first ship slipping schedule, we didn't say, tough, it's not our fault, we can't install the system. You know, instead we asked, what can we do instead? And they did it. So they actually delivered the electronic support system on the ship early, ahead of schedule, and it was very successful. Festival and the sea trials, it went just really, really well, um, and so that was, you know, the, sort of what we took away from that. When we think of the framework that's in the cozy PMI book, is about one of the real hallmarks of of effective integration across disciplines is is collaboration, um, and those those early workshops set the groundwork for mutual respect. And for communications, and for everybody to get to know each other to work face to face, and um, one of the people we talked to said we were really empowered to talk to each other, not only in the workshops but all the way through. We had to let the we had to let Dan and the program office know what we were doing, but there were never bottlenecks. We could talk to each other directly. We could solve problems, uh, and that's really important because that's not that's not the case on a lot of a lot of different different programs so they were very collaborative um they shared information that's a second thing that's a second hallmark is that information is shared and in this case what each of the contractors did uh, you had sob with the combat management system you had cea with the with the radar and then you had Excellus um, for the elect- – basically they were the prime for the electronic support system. They each provided the others with a simulation on a laptop of their system and their interfaces. And so what that allowed each of them to do was some very early testing of those interfaces, obviously not in a complete lab and not on the ship, but it was a way to discover – defects and errors and integration problems very early. So that also that also helped. And so once the real systems came together, it was pretty smooth on their mm. integration and test. Yeah. Um, and then finally, the other hallmark is the ability to make rapid and effective decisions. And once that one ship was running behind, they were able to quickly say, okay, we've got Wuramonga that's going into the water. Let's put it on Wuramonga instead. Let's, let's, you know, we'll change our contractual work and we'll have to see trials on that. So they did. So it was just a good example of all of that. And we talked, you know, last time we talked about the importance of people. Oh, yes. And, and, and this was, again, the example. Dan Kelleher is the project manager. And I also have to mention... Uh, a person named Gary Crawford, who was the he was the chief engineer, and he also worked tire tirelessly. One thing about Gary is he had his background was not only in um, in the world of um, um, of electronic support, but he had actually been an electronic support officer on a ship in the Navy. So, he, what people said about him is he had the technical depth. And he really understood when there was a decision to be made operationally for the warfighter, what mattered and what didn't. You know, he wasn't academic about it, but but he was really good. So I think both of them get a, get a lot of the credit. And on June 6th, 2016, I had a schedule. Um, they were uh, that that electronic support capability was approved for initial operations by the Chief of Navy and uh, after completing its a series of successful sea trials and operational testing and so it's out there now protecting the, protecting the fleet and um, so that, that's, that's another happy story that's in the book.
0: That's tremendous yeah it's, it's so nice to hear those good stories so much of what you hear normally is I think we maybe talked before you tend to hear mutterings about bad ones
1: yeah. Um
0: yeah. it's so unusual to get those really good learnings from from two really interesting and quite different projects as well so
1: Yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. And you know I think what's interesting about the two projects is they they were very different in exactly how they achieved um effective collaboration and information sharing um, you know we talked about the super Hornet with their integrated product teams and 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 the contractor government collaboration and it was a much bigger, program, but it achieved the same thing of the collaboration, the information sharing. And then we, you know, we had an example of effective decision making as well. So what I like about that book, and the book does have a whole framework of discussing what then contributes to effective collaboration and information sharing and decision making. And, and, you know, it's, it's a whole culture and everything else. And, um, you can really see these two projects went about it very differently, but you can see it in the framework in that book and, and, and what they achieved though, which was the outcome of ahead of schedule and a very effective system. You know, they did that through the collaboration, information sharing, and 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 making effective fast decisions. Yep.
0: Brilliant. Well, that's uh, that's been tremendous. Thank you so much for for both of these, uh, Betsy. It's been it's been really good to to catch up with you and uh, and for you to share these experiences. Um, yeah. So, I, I, before I suppose before before I say goodbye, um, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the what's the best contact details?
1: Uh, so the best contact um, is they can reach me at Betsy B E T S Y. At software-metrics.com. So it's just software and then a dash, not underscore, but a dash, metrics.com. Yep. Um, and I, I do check, I email all the time. I would love to, um, I, well, as you can tell, I love talking about these projects. And so I really, really appreciate, are you giving me the opportunity to do that? So if anybody has any questions, um, yeah, please get in touch with me.
0: Excellent. Oh, that's great. I'll include that in the uh in the notes that go with the podcast as well when it goes out. So, uh, okay. so so people can can read it and maybe even click on it if the click works and uh and get back a hold of you. But um no, so it's been brilliant and hopefully we'll get the chance to catch up face to face the next time you're in sunny
1: Perth. i uh, you know I love Perth, so oh, yes. um, nobody'll be happier than me. Good
0: stuff. So I'll <laughs> I'll 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 let you get on with the rest of your day and thank you very much.
1: Okay, thank you, Francis.